Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Welcome to episode 500. I can't believe we've hit 500 already. And when I say we, all of you, but also my small team here, and I want to take this moment to especially thank my wonderful assistant, Crystal, who produces this show, puts all the content together. If you're on my socials, she edits all of those reels that I put out. And I really want to thank you, Crystal, for all that you do for me and for this show. You are amazing. So I thought about how we would celebrate episode 500. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be teaching all of you to be prioritizing self, I'm going to be a bit self-indulgent for today's episode. This is a recording of an interview where I was interviewed a few weeks ago. I really enjoyed this chat. I talk about my journey of creating financial security in my life for my family and the journey it took me on. I open up about some stuff I haven't talked about anywhere else. I, yeah, laid all out on the journey so far and some of my early days and some of the patterns that I had and some of the things I had to overcome to get out the other side and to be in this position here serving all of you and sharing as much knowledge and wisdom as I can. So today is an opportunity to hear more of my story. As always, love hearing your feedback. So let me know what you think. Also let you know that in the coming weeks, there'll be some changes going on in the Grief Code podcast. Some uh, new opener, opener and closer and fresh new track from a very good friend of mine who's a extremely talented artist and look forward to sharing all of that with you very soon. Enjoy. A couple of months ago, I interviewed Barra Serna and we were chatting afterwards, episode 444 for those who are curious. We're chatting afterwards about what I do and she was asking me lots of questions. She's like, oh, I need to interview you. And I'm like, yeah, cool, I'll come on your podcast. She's like, no, no not just for my podcast, for your podcast. So that's what we did today. She interviewed me, told more about my story. Some of you have heard it before, but she asked it in a completely different and new way, of course. Each person doing interviewing is going to have their different take on the world and different things. I, I love this chat. Shared some stuff I've never shared anywhere before. So more about me, more about my story. And of course, as always, hopefully some wisdom there for all of you to think about and implement in your life. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> 
So here we are. We are. The tables have turned. So in our, we have met a few weeks ago, and I was absolutely impressed by your presence, the way you deliver anything, the way you speak, um, hold space, create container, the way you analyze and express yourself. So clearly it was time for you to be in the talking chair. You better introduce yourself first, Barra, but thank you for that introduction. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Barra from East Europe, living in America, teaching about money, mindset, and I'm the 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 people, I'm, I'm a person that people love to hate because I'm the anti-sugar coat, whip your ass into, pardon my French, um, into I don't care about your feelings, let's get to it. Yeah, and, and everyone needs that once in a while. Yes. And, oh my God, what I've been loving about your post is that you 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 have the same goals often in a post but you're so kind <laughs> uh extremes right love it yeah love it i think that's a product of our own experience and what we had and what we needed and Absolutely. Uh, yeah so there were, don't get me wrong there are different times i don't come from a sporting background so there are times where i just need exactly what you deliver which is it's this go and fucking do it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right now i think you made a really i think we teach the way the last way that we deemed helpful um or that delivered us a little like reality and put us into gear yeah absolutely what um how did you even start this podcast what was the the backstory because obviously everyone told you probably like you should start a podcast and first i'm assuming without even knowing your backstory i'm assuming you were like hey Matthew, sure maybe you know one day um and now there's a podcast with hundreds of episodes yeah so I think once i got into business it was just made sense to me i, I used to have conversations with like-minded people friends that I sort of I connected with along the journey. And we would sit down and we'd talk about things that you don't talk about in every other day conversation. I was still working in corporate back then, so I certainly wasn't having the conversations in those spaces. And you'd get to the end and you go, that was so profound. Like, we should have recorded that. And so it was always been in the back of my head, like, I need to be doing a podcast. And and my greatest strength is is one to one or one to a two or three like that that's where i get in my flow so it just made sense to me that i would be good at that well when we went to that first lockdown in this march 2020 in australia i was watching uh, another friend of mine in business he was using this particular platform and he was live streaming it to to all his socials and i just rang him i said what what is that and how do you, how do i get a hold of that because i'm thinking i've got time now and there's a platform and I've got no excuse. Like it was always like podcast is a big production. I don't know how to do all of those things, the technical aspects, which is certainly not my strength. So I said, oh, well, I'll just get started. So I just started, I literally just called it chatting with, and I just started chatting with people. And every week and I would interview people at the same time and friends, people I'd connected with, people who had great stories. And then as my brand was evolving at that time as well, I eventually got to the point, must be, what are we in? It's nearly, must be nearly two years, like 
No, that can't be right. Three years. Yeah, there well, must be. No, that I've been actually that actually in a podcast format. Hmm. Um, I'm about to hit 500 episodes, so that would make sense. It's it's getting close to two years. So I do five a week. So, yeah. That's hardcore. Yeah, so there's only one interview a week and four individual ones where just, I don't know about you, but I'm forever getting ideas and concepts and may as well put it down somewhere so other people can hear it Absolutely. as well. It's constantly, constantly. So, but, so one thing, I'm taking notes as we speak. So you have a corporate background. I do, yeah. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I used to joke with people, I'll, you know, even into my late 30s, I'll let you know what I want to do when I grow up. And, and I was just kind of just going through the motions of a lot. I was going to say a bit, a lot, making reasonable progress because you know, I had good work ethic and, and I was good at conversation, but I didn't have the drive that I knew I needed. And, and I was just, yeah, I was just on the treadmill, I guess, round in circles, drifting, happy just to be taken wherever life was going to take me. And actually, that, if anything, that was kind of like my mantra. It'll all work out, just let it go sort of thing. Was that a conscious – have you heard of the surrender experiment? Not specifically, no. Uh, I will order that book for you. But uh, without spoiling the book, he's he's also a corporate guy, and he at one point makes the choice to – um, accept anything that the universe delivers to him. So it was not that was was it that type of like, hey, I'm gonna see what life brings me and go with it. It was probably a bit of apathy. So I went from awkward teen, really unsure of myself and and lacking confidence, to discovering alcohol at when I went to university and and that was my crutch to give me confidence in different situations and and it worked in a heap of different scenarios but it also had a trade-off so that for those early years I was like I was literally living for the weekend drink like we, we used to drink uh well at uni it was Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday and then and then we discovered Sunday if we drink at lunchtime on Sunday well, that's a good way to recover from the night before and we can get in a good solid six hours on a Sunday afternoon and be tucked up in bed by, you know, maybe seven, eight o'clock. And so the whole cycle would then begin on a Monday morning, bleary-eyed into work. Um, I didn't drink caffeine. I didn't drink coffee or I was going to say caffeine back then. And then I discovered coffee and it's like, oh, that's interesting. And then so then that became the – the cycle alcohol from later in the week over the weekend and then caffeine to fuel me through the week and actually thinking about it probably i probably did about five years without coffee in corporate world where i don't know how i picked myself up i probably it's probably a reflection of where my career was going which was nowhere and i would just sort of you know ease through the week dry out until Wednesday and then and then get excited for the weekend by Thursday and then do mm. bits and pieces. And um, I my first job was TV. I did a teaching degree. I was pretty clear I didn't want to be a teacher after about five minutes of my prac teaching in a in a secondary school. And I was teaching so I, I got into teaching to do PE teaching because I thought, oh you know, sport, that'll be easy. 
but then at the same time the curriculum changed it became as much about personal development and health so teaching my first prac teaching sex ed to year nine so 14 15 year olds uh yeah that was challenging for a for someone in their well, I must have only been about 20 21 already lacking confidence and having to go into that environment and they are ruthless kids at that age are ruthless and they can they can spot a weakness and they would have so I was like I, yeah this is not for me and so a mate gave me some work uh where he was working television did quite well applied for a job there did quite well there it was like just organizing things so like my mate taught me like how to do things but I also had a bit of a knack for like it was a tape library in the tv station right so I had a knack for finding things that other people couldn't find and and I extended that from the library to all the way through the building so I would just like go speak to people and and find things and then I applied for a job where the guy before me stroke of luck or divine intervention or whatever had been really unorganized and I just got it organized and suddenly I'm looking like an absolute genius because I've got this this particular part of the business absolutely thriving. Um, but at the same time, that was with minimal effort. I was still, like the behaviour I described before was still going on, but I just sort of fell into a space that worked. Um, then I did some travelling. Avoid, let's avoid uh, the reality of life. I'll just go travelling for a year. Actually, my wife and I, we weren't married at that point, but we were going to go for, for a couple of years. Um, she has a British passport, so we, we could have stayed over there and um, Australians get like a two-year working, well, they used to, I don't know if they still do, working visa in the UK. Uh, she got a great job opportunity, decided to stay. We we still did some travel together, but the two years turned into less than a year. And then I got a job in, then I got a job in sports television. And sports television was just bliss for someone who loves sport and was looking to do as little work as possible and get decent pay for it. So that's where I landed. So for um, our perspective, what year were you made? As in born? Yeah. 73. 73. Okay. So you, yeah. you kind of like had the peak of all the TV experience and the glorious time. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, what, and, um, and it was pay ahead. television, so it was like the very start of that too. So there was lots of uh, money for for uh, entertainment, shall we say, not the entertainment on TV, but for the staff, and uh, little and and let's say less need to get the actual content one hundred percent. Although that did change quickly through that time. So mm -hmm. people used to talk about the good old days, and and uh, yeah, that never lasts. <laughs> But it's great to experience like peaks because they yeah. become these unique stories that no one can relate to unless you are in a peak. Yep. So bring us back first to the younger you. Um, what did you want to become when you were going to grow up? Yes, yeah, so I, I didn't. I didn't know. Like I, I, I had no idea. Like I, I was clueless i just thought yeah maybe sport but then i'm like well i don't know what what, what can you do in sport which is why i did the pe teaching degree <laughs> i had a vague idea about sports journalism and and the mark that i needed for that to go to that particular uh there was only one in in my state um and it was out of town 
And for me, I think there was part of me that was really determined unconsciously to not get enough marks to have to make that decision because I don't know if I would have had the confidence to go and live away from home at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I missed out on that. The next sort of choice, second choice, was this PE teaching degree. And, um, yeah, and that's where I ended up. Was school a part of the plan or was it more culturally expected from you, whether culturally or from the home expected for you to go to school? Not expected. Both my older siblings had, but it wasn't expected. In, in fact, looking back now, there, there was little, if any, pressure to do anything. We got we got a lot of choices. And, and probably at that point, like – I love the fact that I can give my children like choices and 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 not be that controlling sort of person that I was 10 15 years ago. But for me at that point, I needed some direction. I needed more come on, get your act together. Um so it's interesting. We all I guess we always need a bit of what we don't have. Uh so no, it was just more I don't know what to do. So if I go to uni, I can prolong the decision for another 4 years. And I guess the travel was the same, right? I don't know what I'm doing, so let's just go move to the other side of the world for a couple of years and then I don't have to make a decision. How much of it, because um, you swiftly touched on it, like let's avoid the reality of life, or you use different wording, but um, hmm. how much of it was not wanting the responsibility that a grown-up has versus 100%. actually like not knowing? Because those, like, they are different. Yeah, definitely. Oh, not knowing, Absolutely. But I think that's that ties into responsibility because it's like I need to know. Like mm-hmm. I remember, I remember when I was younger, thinking, "How am I going to find someone to get married?" Like you know, that stereotypical: you get married, you have kids. Like that's the path. And I, I'd always be like this fear around. Well, how am I going to do that? Like this shy, awkward. Uh, I thought ugly child. And at that point, the way I was, I probably my energy would have been absolutely ugly. And like what? You know, I'm always worried about the future thing. So I guess there's probably would have been, I can't remember exactly. It was a bit of a drunken haze probably. I can't remember exactly, but I imagine there was an element of, yeah, I, I don't I don't want to face the reality of being tied into a mortgage and, and yeah, responsibility. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do you probably, feel that? Um, oh, sorry. And, pro- oh. and probably at that time, given when I, because I my dad was, like he was a math teacher, he was great with detail. He used to count every cent, right? So I can I've got memories of him when he went to the petrol station and he would write exactly how many liters he bought and what the price was and 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 just have everything detailed. Now being an extrovert, me and detail, I've had to learn detail. So I was good at maths, ironically, but there wasn't the same desire to actually get myself in that space of like knowing all the detail. But yeah, at the same time, whenever I went out, I was consciously counting the money in my head. What have I spent? Where did it go? Have I like, have I lost some? Well, that's interesting. I've probably, I've probably got a couple of memories of losing wallets and finding money and all sorts of stuff like that. But I do remember when I went overseas, having that thought of, I don't have to worry about money. Mm. I can just go and be free and, I came back with a sizable debt when I got back from traveling, uh, but but it was not having to think about that that constant noise around the financial responsibility. And interestingly that you asked that, because I've never been asked in that way before, because that was the real motivator for change for me. 
my dad's passing was kind of the moment of, okay, well, you, things need to be different. But it was the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, which made me realise I need to I need to do something about my financial future. And that was my gateway into learning about myself and growing. Tell, tell us more about what 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 was your situation looking like until 2007 and which factors played into like I have to change um, or adjust? It was a conversation. Route. It was a conversation with a family member, and they were talking about their parent not being able to retire because in Australia we have a superannuation scheme when ten percent goes out of our wage into our retirement fund, um, and it's most superannuation schemes are through uh, investing and so this person couldn't they couldn't retire because their investments in their superannuation had crashed and they needed more money and I'm like what like you're fucking kidding me are you like that's a thing and they're like yeah and I'm like and so I have zero clue about that like how all that worked and I think probably I was just passing time to retirement, which mm. I know a lot of people can get stuck in that trap. And so I was like, oh, this is not right. So I just, after five or well, actually six years of I need to be better after having children and my dad passing, okay, I need to be better. And then not knowing how. And then this moment of like, okay, well, this this is well actually I'd probably I link I link them to now, but more it was just like I need to be better financially. I need to understand this. So I started talking to financial planners and, and everyone just seemed like they were trying to sell me something. So mm-hmm. I, I was in, yeah, instantly um, resistant to that. And then I reached out to my brother because he's always been someone that's that's given me great advice. And he did the best thing a sibling could do, which was he didn't say you should do this, you have to do this. There was no there was no push that might have brought more resistance. He goes, just check this guy out. He, um, I know him personally, and he helps people um, create wealth. Okay, cool. So the first thing you do when you go to this guy's website, sign up for the newsletter. Cool, I did that, and then you start getting free audio. And this audio was talking about building wealth through property. But his main message was around mindset. Mm. And I used to listen to those again and again, and it would make me cringe because it was so uncomfortable. But it was what I needed to hear. So I, I just spent, I don't know, maybe three months listening to all of his stuff. And so the moment he goes, and I've got an event coming up and it's in Sydney, and I was there. And then he talked about uh, property in the morning and um, – in the afternoon, he said, this is all going to be about mindset. This is going to be uh, uncomfortable, but this is what I know you need to be successful to build, successfully build wealth. And at the end, of course, the offer, and, and there's a sudden screaming at me, you've got to do this. Like, you, you've got to do this. And, of course, there's the offer. If you get it today, it's got the reduction and whatever. And it was one of those moments where I went up to the front. I said, look, if I go home and say to my wife, this is what I want to invest in this, she's going to think, you've been to this thing, you've been conned. And there's probably part of me that was thinking that as well. And he said, well, why do you want to do this? 
And I don't know if you've had those moments where the words come out of your mouth almost feels like involuntarily. Like mm-hmm. you say the words and you hear yourself saying in me like, wow, where did that come from? And I, and I said, because I'm sick of being mediocre. Ooh. I know, right? And, and I Ooh. heard it and went, oh, wow. Like, so anyway, he said, look, I'll, I'll give you all the, the discounts. You can pay on Monday. Go have a conversation with your wife get her to have a look at what I do and, and everything and, and away you go. So that's the first bit. Okay, cool. I've got to, I've got to stay on that. But, oh, I've got to tell you this one because I was actually going to do a, a – um, I've done a, a episode on this, um, but I was going to turn it into an article this week. But part of personal growth from my experience and from, from the people I've worked with, it comes with a degree of paranoia because – You've come from a world where, well, you know what it is? It's breaking free from the programming and it feels so uncomfortable. So suddenly you're like, is this whole thing a setup? I had this bloke sitting next to me the whole day. He'd never spoken to me, but the moment I go up to speak to the front of the room and then I come back and sit down, suddenly he wants to talk to me. And I'm like, again, overthinking, like paranoid, all of those different things. And then I remember I remember leaving the place at the end of the day and running to my car because I was like, is someone following me? Like, this is like weird, right? But it was just like my, my mind was just racing because I'm like, oh, my God, I've just committed something. It was I think it was, it was going to cost about 2500 Now, Real money. Not, yeah, significant money, particularly when yeah. I wasn't earning a great deal and my, my financial mindset around such things was so, like, such in a state of lack. At the same time, I'd happily spend money on alcohol, gambling, all sorts of areas where I would just fritter it away. But to work on myself, like, it's funny watching the same thing happen now for different people. Oh, I can't afford coaching, but then you see them go buy a car or go on a holiday. It's like, cool, that's that's cool. That's also a good choice, but can't afford it or not not ready. And so, but I was ready, right? Like I was so ready. And stroke of luck or again, divine intervention, when I got home, so I'm, I'm a sports nut, my, my favourite team, um, I got up here on the wall and and – they were on that night and I wouldn't have missed the game for anything back then. Like it's on like, <laughs> yeah, it was like I'd, I'd watch games on my phone or on a listen on a radio at weddings and all sorts of stuff. Right. Anyway, the, the they're playing that night and my wife's like, well, you're going to want to watch the, f- the football. Like you're going to, you're going to um, like, I said, no, no, fuck the football. You've got to look at this. So suddenly I had her attention, right? She's like, oh, this must be serious. So then we spent all right. that, that night like researching and looking and, um, yeah, and then committed to the program. Now, the, the thing is, is that because I'd invested that much money and because that was a big deal for both of us, I was going to get everything I could out of that thing. And I've looked at people I met on that training and I still, I still connected with some of them now. And I, and I know that they haven't, they haven't had the same growth 
And that's cool. That's like we're up there on the journey. But for me, I was like, I'm, I'm throwing myself into this. Like I treated it like I had a second job. I was looking mm. at the training. I was trying to learn as much as I could about this stuff. So then I, I remember messaging him going, like, I've listened to all your stuff like so many times. What else have you got? And he said, oh, just, you know, just keep listening. It'll be good. And then the next probably two days later, he sends this video and it's Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn talking about when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. So I, I imagine that was designed specifically for me or, again, a stroke of divine timing, whatever. Mm. But he sends that on his weekly newsletter and so now I've discovered Jim Rohn. So now I'm listening to him like everything, like and just the messages that he was talking about, discipline and all those different things, like I couldn't get enough of it. Mm. And then learning about journaling and um, the, the one, one again, it's interesting that the theme around money comes up again. Um, that would be perhaps something to do with the uh, energy of you because I know you talk a lot about money, which is really cool. The um, He would talk about paying fair price for things. And, and it's a mindset thing. It's like, you know, these people that try and get free stuff and it's like, you know, what's that about? Like if something's worth it, you've got to pay, you've got to pay the value that it's worth. And here I was listening to one of his programs that I was getting off YouTube. Someone had put the whole thing on there. I'm like, oh, I've got to pay for this. I can get it here for free, but I've got to pay for it. So I bought it and then I started buying more of his stuff and I started learning more and I'm like, okay. And then they sent out a package and here's another guy. And so, so I discovered Les Brown and I'm like, oh, this is even better. He's like that. He's like revving me up and going, come on, like that sporting thing that I talked about earlier. Yeah, exactly. Punch on. Let's, let's go. And so that, they, those, so that my first mentor, Michael, Jim Rohn, Les Brown, they, they were the impetus for me to, to go, okay, all right, we're catching up to do here. And then, I've been racing ever since. They were the gateway. They were, yeah. They were the gateway. Yeah. Um, I first want to quickly touch on and specifically pause for listeners, the amount of courage it takes to acknowledge that you perceive your own life as mediocre. That's like so much, so much respect for that. The acceptance of what is and not and understanding that that's the baseline, not the ceiling. Oh, yeah. that's so powerful. And where, whereas you didn't necessarily have a um, a real crisis going on, right? Because there wasn't necessarily a crisis which could happen in a few years, but it wasn't necessarily. But you you understood the 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 importance of that real of that moment. Oh, yeah. so yeah. good. So good. Yeah. Uh, I think um, whether you call it a calling or whether you call it just a, a, mo a line in the sand moment, but I think everyone who's done any personal growth has a moment like that where it's like it's it's like the um, you're going over the edge. You're jumping without a parachute. You don't, you don't know what's next, so you just go. The only thing you know is that you don't want what was behind you anymore. So yeah. at that point, anything you jump doesn't matter. You just don't want the thing that was that that used to be the norm. Yeah, hundred percent. 
And you know, thinking about it now, like you said, it wasn't in a crisis. Well, it kind of was in a way because when when my dad passed, like it, it this this is a, the essence of what I talk about now. It, it wasn't just the grief of losing him; it was everything else that came flooding to the surface. It was like I'd spent all my life never really feeling like I had a connection with him, mm. and like I remember like. Ask him, I asked my old brother again, I'm like, like how, what, do you, what do I talk to dad about? He goes, I don't know, but if you ever think of what it is, let me know because he doesn't give too much away because he's a quiet man, right, more of a man of action. And, and so then when we had our first child and I rang home and he answered and just the joy and excitement in his voice and I was like, oh, this is going to be the best. And he was dead within 10 months. Oh. Yeah, right. So... So then I'm like trying to make sense of all of these weird feelings that I'd been suppressing for so long that were just bursting out. And then at the same time, because of of the grief and because of the pain through, through all of my life, I was being really angry parent. So the first incarnation, of, well, not first incarnation, but one of the early incarnations of my business was about helping dads to be calm because I certainly wasn't that. And I look back and we're just, we're just flicking through some old videos with my, with my eldest just before of like, you know, those early days. Like the reality is, is I, I was probably nowhere near as bad as it, my memory is in my head, but my memory is, is that I was always angry and snappy and frustrated. And again, the alcohol wouldn't have helped in, in those situations, but it was more than that. It was more, like I'm going nowhere. I'm really not happy about who I am, what I'm doing, where I'm heading. And that was playing out and it played out for, for like I said, those five, six years after he'd passed. So, so not a crisis as in life threatening, but, but a crisis of all of the soul is the phrase that comes to my mind. Like I was so disconnected from everything. It's just, I was like a, it was like being a zombie really. Hmm. Um, Referencing back to your father, do you think that um, not being able to connect, would that be the correct wording, that you that, that it was hard to connect to your father, was that due to a mismatch of love languages, by lack of better wording, where he's just providing and that's the way he expresses his love and you're like, I need something else, but 100%. not getting it? Yeah, hundred percent. I didn't have any understanding of that. And actually, initially, it was blame. I'd put all the responsibility on him. Like, you know, you need, you should have been better, and all these different things. But I, there was, I look back at so many different moments where I could have made a different decision that would have been better. And I'm not talking necessarily when I was young, even as a teenager, or but just didn't. So yeah, exactly right. Like I, I uh, conversation. So I'm an extrovert. He's an introvert. Like, I <laughs> the irony. So my my youngest, he just questions million questions. Like he would just ask question after question. Curious, right? That was me too. And for my dad, who was a teacher, introvert. He, they would have just done his head in. It did my head in. I was an, I was an extrovert. And then over time, I'd be patient up to a point. But then eventually, it's like I can't take any more questions. Now that would have point would have come to for him even earlier, and and one of five children, right? So, yeah, competition for attention, and where where I got attention was 
through uh, getting in trouble. So that's when, that was my go-to. So I'd pick a fight with someone or him or whatever. Um, so on one level, that was it. That was getting attention. But I also now, now know as an empath that I was seeing instinctively when other people had emotion going on and I was picking a fight with them so they would be able to process it like responsible for how everyone felt. And, and this really came to me when I saw my son doing the same thing. Mm. He's picking a fight with me. I'm like, Why, what is going on here? And then I realised, I'm like, he's, oh, he's got that same, that same, he's wired the same way in that he's seeing, not consciously, this, oh, he was six. He's seeing that there's something going on for me and he's going to bring it out. And I didn't want him to, to do what I did, which was I'd pick a fight, like it felt like, this is my memory of it. The rest of the family would then be all happy and I'd be the one in my room crying going, what, why did I even get involved there? And I was watching him repeat that same pattern going, no, can't have this. This, I can't have him go through what I went through. And um, so learning then about the, the different way that we connect, um, so yeah, you nailed it, the, the different love languages and the different way we connect. Whereas for my mum, like – she was more naturally that way inclined to to have those conversations. And so we would talk for ages. Still, we still did that now. Like I still catch up where they were regularly and, and we could just chat for hours. So yeah, you, you, you nailed it. Um, in hindsight, cause you, you specifically mentioned um, as you got older, you could have done things differently in, in, a, in the, in the opportunity or possibility to connect. Could you give us some, examples of how you would have tried that um because i think we work really well with examples if we recognize something like this like yeah so the one that comes to mind immediately was i was going on year nine camp i think and um was we were all getting on the bus leaving our parents and my dad didn't come to well no he, he used to come to a lot of my stuff but i always thought he wasn't watching because he, he was marking maths papers or whatever and he and again he'd rather keep to himself so he often was in the car or again my memory of it um and where was i heading with that oh so he was driving me off and i was watching other um fathers and sons hug each other goodbye and my dad would have done what he always did, which was give me the space to decide whether I, that's what I wanted or not because he's a teacher. He also knows what, you know, like that might be how that would be seen and all those sorts of things. I didn't have the courage to give him a hug. I wanted him to take the lead and do that. And both of us were waiting and, and it didn't happen. And I remember getting on that bus just feeling so deflated. Everyone else is excited and I'm just, and I'm just gutted. So... Yeah, that's 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 a, at an age where, yeah, you could say, well, at that age, maybe I, I didn't have the ability, but like I, I had, I had the ability. I could have made a different choice then. I absolutely mm. could have made a different choice. Hmm. So it wasn't even like, like any ignorance on his behalf. It was it was literally a mismatch of who making the first step. I, I would, in his position, I would have done the same thing. Really? Oh, it's a, it's a, like a, you know, like a, we were a boys school. It was, you know, we talk about the, the old days, like it was hardcore, right? Like you would, people would come down on you for the slightest thing. So you were just trying to find ways just to almost be invisible. 
nothing that's going to bring mm-hmm. attention to you. So like he would have been conscious of that and just giving me that space that if I didn't need, if I was, if I preferred not to have that, then he was going to let me make that choice. Well, that'd be, that'd be my thoughts. And that's, I would do the same. Like if, if my children um, weren't comfortable, well, you know what, I probably would still, I would still probably ask, I, I don't even know, but, but, but in that particular circumstance and me at that age in that environment, yeah, I, I would have probably made the same choice. It'd be different these days. I think kids are more, right. more comfortable being affectionate and showing it. And um, then you grew into uh, the angry son um, growing into adolescence. Um, I was pretty good in most circumstances, but it would bubble over in family settings and on the sporting field. And that didn't really change and until the moment I'm talking about then. Even the, the sporting field uh, anger was something that I've only got on top of probably about three, four years ago. And interestingly, once I did, I kind of lost the urge to play. That real competitive, like when I talk, I'm talking about football. Well, I still like, I still play golf. I still love being involved in sport. But that competitive needing to win, get one over people, was interesting. Didn't didn't feel I needed that part of it. It was always such a release. Whereas once I had the ability to stay calm, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, I don't need this anymore. So the sport was your like your alchemy version of like getting the anger out without it. Gotcha. Hundred percent. Sorry, just do not disturbing my phone, amateur. Um, yeah. So, what was the come down or that transitional period from you? Um, like not being angry anymore. Was that a conscious choice? Like this is not working because X, Y, Z evidence. How did that go? Talk me through it. So that, that program that I signed up for, mm-hmm. there was two pivotal moments in that. Actually, one of them wasn't in the program, but I think the, the mindset then of, of the program created a shift in me that I was just hungry for more. So the first one was writing letters of forgiveness. And this is something I still teach now. And it's like, write these letters of forgiveness to everyone that you feel has done you wrong. And it's not not just for the, the big ones. This is like anything, anywhere where you feel wronged. And this letter is not for them. You're not sending it to them. It's to get it out of your head and to make peace with it. And so I'm writing these letters to different people, maybe a paragraph, and then I'm two and a half pages into this letter to my dad and I'm bawling my eyes out going, oh, there might be some stuff here. Mm. So that was one, was like, and and within the one of the very first uh, steps, strategies in the program, again, it's, it's a foundational thing of what I teach people now, was having that vision for your future. And he actually said, he said, if you're not prepared to put some serious time and effort into this, you may as well pack up your laptop, 
send me or not pick up laptop, close this uh, window down, send me an email and I'll give you a refund. It's like, fuck you, I'll show you. So again, that's that motivated me. So okay, well, I'll make sure I, I do this. I've still got my, what do you call the um, uh, dream vision journal. I've still got mine just down there on the bookshelf of all of the things I put there. And, and the stuff that I wanted from a personal perspective was oh, my body was riddled with different physical pain and ailments. So that was a big one. But the other one and the main one was to be a calm parent. And I wrote a lot of detail around that. And when you start writing detail, again, the listeners would have heard me talk about this again and again around uh, keeping a journal. The magic of when you write something down is that the unconscious brain then starts trying to find the solution to that. There's a certain spiritual aspect towards that as well where things just seem to manifest because we've created our reality by what we've written down. So I wrote this down. I, I want to be a calm parent. I want to have that ability to be patient, all these different things. And then not long after that, I'm playing golf and going to the clubhouse afterwards for a beer. And I'm just drawn to this um, secondhand bookstore and just walk over there and it's like dollar, $2 books. And, and there's, a, I would have been drawn to the sports book. So I wouldn't have been quite at that stage where it would have been all about personal development. And there's one book there from a, a well-known coach here in Australia. And, and I'm like, Oh, it's called sport is life. Life is sport. It's just up there in the bookshelf behind me still. And what I didn't know, and I, and I, I wasn't aware of when I picked it up, but it was co-authored by his wife. And within this, within the chapters of the book, it talked about, you know, the, the mindset of like an athlete and how you can take that into other areas of your life. And again, I couldn't get enough of this sort of stuff. It's like athletes have tough conversations. The good, like encouragement. And, and I'm in a corporate environment where you only hear about shit when things go wrong. And it's like when you're an athlete, you you give encouragement, you you tell people when they're doing well, you you raise them up. You're and I'm like, man, yeah, like why is that not happening? But at the same time, they have the tough conversations, and they say, okay, we need to be better here, we need to be better here. So it's like, like again, it's like that sporting background, but then applying it into a corporate environment. Oh, this is fantastic. But the real big one was then this this particular coach was known for getting the best out of a group with perhaps less ability that the others had. And they they were known for doing things a little bit differently. And there was a few players there that were a bit quirky and they were doing things different to everyone else. And I knew that was something to do with meditation, but they talked about this in the book. And his wife's mm -hmm. a meditation teacher. I've actually since told her this story, which, which she was pretty pumped to hear from me. But she's talking about meditation and I'm like, this is the only way that meditation could have found me in a sport book, right? What I thought was a sport book, but not really. And so I'm like, oh, well, if it's good enough for these guys, I'll give it a crack. An interesting thing happened. The days I meditated, I was calmer when I was being a dad. I was more mm. focused. And then the days when I didn't meditate, I'd be snappy and I'd be more prone to aggression and frustration. I'm like, huh, that's pretty cool. So I'm like, I'm doing more of this. So, so it was having that learning to release stuff that had happened in the past through the letters and then finding a, an actual strategy, a tool that could bring me to calm 
and then work through the whole day, not perfectly, but infinitely better than what I'd been doing, it was like, Phew, what else is possible? Mm. What else What else is possible? Mm. Because you see such, when you start doing this stuff, you see such profound shifts that you just, F, and I, again, I, I now know this is not everyone's experience, but for me it's like I want more of this. And still now, like I'm probably a little bit less um, obsessive about it, but I'm always looking for ways to improve things. I am trying to nail, not nail down, but amplify on the the phase or transition which you beautiful beautifully worded from where you're basically just existing out of anger and frustration versus when you start living yeah because the making that choice um do you feel that it was a one singular choice or was it a choice over and over again oh yeah ongoing choices mm -hmm. whereas in the past the choice would have been that's too scary I'm not even going to look at that. Whereas now I'm like, that's scary. Bring it on. Like I was paying for these different. So I, then I was doing more training. So after a, this, this mentorship went for a year and then I'm like, I went to this event where, which he had um, uh, promoted. And this next one was like 13,000, I think. And so mm -hmm. that 12 months later, after balking at two and a half, I'm now spending 13,000 on a, and that's 10 years ago. So that's, in today's money, that's significant, right? Well, significant even by those standards. But I'm like, give me more. Like, I can't remember what your question was now. Doesn't matter. Oh, existing. Oh, existing. You're talking about existing, or um, yeah. So at that point, I'm just like, this. If this is how quickly I can move here, and like starting having opportunities find me. I'd put goals for things that I thought would be, you know, five, ten years down the track, and then you'd quickly go that, oh, no, I can actually do this now. And then you'd get results where you'd go, wow, look look where we are now. Like his thing was property investing. So mm -hmm. it was like we're miles off having the money for that. So we set an intention. And then and then through the program, he's like, now I want you to upgrade your goals and, and be really aggressive and, and make the time frame smaller and the goals bigger. So I did that. And I hit that goal of like, I think it was less than 18 months later for having our first investment property. And then within two more years, having another one. And it was like, mind blown. So the results also showed me that if you just keep this, the process works. Again, it's why I teach people now. Like, have you taken the time to get down with absolute clarity what your future, what you want your future to look like? And that's not to say that your future has to look like that because you quickly learn when you grow, particularly when you start knocking off the personal goals, that that's not how you wanted life to be anyway. As you grow, you realize a lot of those things on there were so egotistical and not that important. Like I, I've got in there in my original list, I wanted a boat. Whereas now I'm like, if I'm going to go near water, I want to be in it or I want to be on it. And I don't want to have to think about the effort of like having to clean a boat, to tow a boat. Like that still seems too hard. You know what I mean? Like 
I'm happy to yeah. go out in a boat for a day, but I'm not a boat sure. person. I'm a I'm a beach person. I'm a I'm a I want I want to be in it. Right, and it's it, you make such a good point because we set goals because of how how we believe the goal achieving the goals will make us feel. Yeah. Um, and whether those are cultural or societal, I always used to say I want a big mansion, and now I'm like, who's gonna clean that? Sure, I can get a cleaner. I don't want no cleaner. Or you know. Now yeah. I have like four bedrooms and I'm already forgetting something in the other room. And I'm like, got to walk all the way back. Imagine having a mansion, mansion, right? Yeah. So it, it you adjust. But I wish that everyone would go down a path of setting some type of goal so you can learn that that the original goal is not what you wanted. Like that's such a. Yeah, it's just a it's just an arbitrary flag in the future for you to work towards so that you can grow and learn that that's not what you wanted anyway. Now, there are some things in there that, that I, that I'm finding that even though I wrote them very logically and, and from an ego perspective, I still want those things. Well, my, my original business plan was, so I was talented uh, in sport when I was younger, but I, I never got the opportunity to, well, I didn't start playing till I was a bit older and I never got the opportunity to try out for any representative teams. And I was like, well, we won church on Sunday when all those sort of things were on. Uh, we, we work in class sort of not, not a heap of money, like that, that sort of side of it wasn't really an option either. And so my original plan for the business was like to give um, young sports people from a, you know, a low socioeconomic background the opportunity and a pathway to elite sport. Now, I still reckon that would be – incredible to be able to create because like what a gift to give having just taken my my son through um representative football he's he's made a decision to to leave himself but but it's mm. like the most the last year i think it was nearly three thousand dollars to play like that's crazy sorry. my dog <laughs> is getting go away go away <laughs> i'm sorry he wants to be involved <laughs> yeah that's that's crazy that's big money yeah. yeah yeah so so how many how many just miss out and and i know it's funny i was seeing people um more and more people creeping in doing that that uh post about you know like um the the romans and and i'll give them a circus and they'll be distracted i'm like yeah sure there's an element of distraction no, no doubt but that's from someone who hasn't appreciated the impact that sport can have at, at mass to create mass change quickly. I remember having a conversation just prior to the pandemic saying that the, the fastest way to change the consciousness of the, of the world would be through sport. And I've got goosebumps and I'm getting them now. And mm. then a pandemic hit and it's like, well, maybe a pandemic might have a, uh, might be, might be faster and more, more efficient. Um, but I still like, I still look at it now and go like, look, the shifts we can create from, if you've got the right people in those places sharing good messages, you see it now. And some of those messages people aren't ready for and they'll cut it down. But in Australia, we've got this tall poppy syndrome, right? If, 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 you're doing, if you appear to be doing too well, then we're going to cut you down. And particularly okay. from, certain, from certain backgrounds, uh, there seem to be more, more targeted. So... We, 
it will there will be a realization that there, there, there can be a, a really significant impact there will reach tipping point and i want to be part of that like i, I had a taste mm-hmm. of working in the professional environment just before the pandemic again that kind of put those plans on hold but i just know what what impact they can have not just for those the, the players and the teams but globally mm. and i'm um, i just want to quickly swiftly touch on even though that might not even be the the the, the intention but like the numbers you meant you mentioned for the coaching those are big numbers and i know especially right now in the world where we have so many coaches right you'll have all this like you know you you pay too much and you're just being scammed and i'm like that's such a personal if 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 you invest in something that's on your edge you allow yourself no way out which is it which is what a lot of us need right well like i can't i can't justify to myself not participating because i paid several thousands right whereas if if, you know if it's several hundred i'm like eh, you know i'll make a little bit more but putting yourself like being aware of where that edge is for you so you get that little fire on your tush that's so yeah yes yes thirty thousand. yes two and a half like yes big money but yeah. absolutely for everyone personally like yes the initial investment that that's going to be the hardest one i think once you've made investment you've got results then it's a no-brainer after that the challenge is that there's so many people out there that have made an investment and haven't got the results and i'd had experiences like that too where like you talked about you know, my, my stuff's always kind. I'd had experiences where I'd invested and I hadn't got the return on investment that I thought I should have got. Now, part of it was my, again, of course, my responsibility. I, I probably wasn't the right course or maybe it was the right course and not quite the right time and sure. maybe you know, I allowed myself to get dragged into things that I shouldn't. But then also it's like that's like – promised this but that wasn't what was delivered and so they're big things for me now people are investing in money that sometimes is at their edge i'm i'm going to make sure they get those results they've got to come to the party if they're not prepared to do the work well then so be it but but in all those in all those examples that i I referenced just before i'd put in the work I'd, i'd tried as hard as i could like i'd I'm, I'm trying to make this work the best that I can and still not got results. And it's like, it's why when someone like our friend Manny turns up and he's offering coaching around marketing that was ridiculously inexpensive, but the results I got working with him were phenomenal. And like when whenever anyone pops up and he's like and and they're questioning what he does i'm like straight on there going like all you need to know is that this stuff works but like what he talks about works and in a world where there's a lot of people out there saying that their system is the go-to system that has to work it's like it's just garbage and and whereas his stuff does and the big thing around it is and again i'm, I'm big on this too it's not here's the system that you have to follow it's like bring your own side of what you bring to the table and fit it into some structure and that's what works 
and that's been a big part of how I've structured mine as well. It's like you get the flexibility to live it your way. I'm never going to tell you what to do. But if you follow this structure and you plug in all of the things that are important to you, then you'll absolutely get results. So the what I would say is if, if people have made that investment and haven't got the results, it's don't just go, well, this stuff doesn't work. It's like ask better questions and find the right person for you because there's plenty of people out there. Absolutely. And allowing yourself that, you know, that buffet of life to, to not be like, hey, I tried this one thing, it didn't work, therefore, and then an extreme conclusion, right? Yeah, all of them um, Right. And, and, and uh, you, using that as evidence that everything is ho- hopeless and never going to get better. Yeah. Um, and, I, and one thing, I'm, I'm not familiar with that specific um, coach or trainer you mentioned. Al- Alfred was, was that the name? Oh, Manny, Manny, Manny. Oh, Wolf. Manny, our Manny. Yeah, our Manny, yeah. Our Manny. So the, the thing is, with, the, 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 the thing is with things that work for sure is that they, are rarely marketed in a gla- like in a sexy way, right? It's yeah. whereas the kind of the perhaps the scammy ones are always like promising big things. One, you know, poking in on that like little desperation or dopamine, like and I'm like, really? Don't don't we all think that if the fastings would have worked, that we would have been there by now, all of us? Yeah. Yes, yeah. If it was that easy, we'd all be doing it. Like, hey, don't get me wrong. I still want to eat all the things. I put an app chronic on my app for five minutes a day and have like a beach body. But unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, yeah, exercise is a good analogy for uh, that whole uh, industry, actually. It's like, no, no, there are shortcuts, but you still got to do the work. But But if you tell people that, then it's like, oh, you must then – then I'll keep searching for the better shortcut. And they'll cut, they cycle back usually in time, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm here. And it's like the shortcuts didn't work. No. My, my, my coach said to me the other day, she said, I've just had a real influx of people come in recently. And, and she's like, they're the same people I spoke to three years ago. And they're in exactly the same place they were. Yeah, right. Oh, painful yep and that was me for nearly 40 years i was just in the same place you know a little bit of growth here and there but essentially the same place will you share a little bit more about your letters of forgiveness what um because i know uh, a lot of programs, whether that's like the AA, which is like the alcohol, they have they have similar versions of um, closing chapters for you. Yeah. Um, it brought you some kind of obviously release emotionally. Um, did it make you look different at people and situations? I'll have to have a think about that. So. What I know, what I know, is that I'd spend a lot of my life being responsible for how other people feel. Right? It's the people pleaser, and that's that behaviour I talked about as a youngster. I was being responsible for how everyone felt, even at that young age. From the youngest age, I think for the empaths, they're doing it from the moment they're conceived. 
so then when you get to an older, you're constantly running around going, is everyone okay? Is everyone okay? Is everyone okay? The letters of forgiveness was like, oh, no, like you can put this shit on them mm. and you can get that out of your head. So, mm. yeah, there have been circumstances and, yes, and yes, you played a part, and but this is just for you to be able to let go of this stuff. They, there were shit things that happened and they were done onto you. Now, at the same time, I'm learning the concept of you still have to take responsibility for every single element of your life. So you have to do it through that lens because if you're just doing it from that place of blame, well, then that will just keep you stuck. But to be able to, like, again, specifically, I, I imagine for the people who are feeling like they're always trying to keep everyone else happy, which is a high percentage mm-hmm. of the population, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's just so good to have that relief to go, mm. here's all the things that all the behaviours that you've had that I was involved in that I didn't like, from the minor things to the extreme. Mm-hmm. To get it out of your head because it's like the simple act of planning, the more, the more sort of next level of journaling. Getting thoughts out of your head creates a clarity and a truth that allows you to stop overthinking that particular part of your mm-hmm. life. Yeah, and so it's the same with this. Like we we don't realize just how much these past events from our life traumatize us ongoing until we write them out, write them down, and get them out of our head. So it's creating a truth around the situation, realizing that you don't have to be responsible for that. And what the bit I've added is that like the 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 one that I learned from somewhere else is like you get a bit of paper and and you actually get the matches which I've got here somewhere too, and and you you. You light it and release it back to energy. So you've got it out of your head. You don't need to go back and read it. It's out. And then just, yeah, turn it back into energy and and, and nice closure. Why did you become the grief code? The, the, what I mentioned before around the six years that I spent of, of not just grieving my dad's passing, but everything related, all that stuff that came to the surface. So that's one element, but it's also because of my ability to find the unresolved in other people, the unknown mm. in other people and help them to shift it. I do it when I, even when I interview in the podcast, I get tells from their body. I've even got some from you today. And when I'm asking the questions, I'll navigate the conversation in and around that. So the people who have, who I interview, feel good afterwards and they say that to me because I'm because I'm recognizing I'm seeing it I'm feeling it or whichever sense I'm using at the time so whether it's innate whether it's a product of the trauma that I went through and the grief that I went through or whether this is just the path I was meant to take and the goosebumps that I get when I say that is probably a yes Mm -hmm. is that I have this ability that I can't fully explain but I see it everywhere I see it in have you read the medical medium and Andrew, uh, Andrew Williams or Anthony Williams, Anthony Williams, I think he talked about he's at, he must have, what did he say? Young kid, maybe nine or 10 or something. He's at dinner and at his house, there was regularly relatives around and the grandparents and then friends, big table, everyone's eating dinner. And there's a, an older person standing behind his nan and he just assumed that everyone else could see this person and this person speaks to him. 
and directly to him and, and he and he get, and he's like no one reacted to it and he's like and so this he, he has you talking to me and they all kind of look at him and he's he goes tell nan tell your nan she's got cancer and he's like waiting for everyone else to react to that no one did and it doesn't say anything and he says this this person says it again so he goes okay and and he says nan you've got cancer and that stopped everyone right and uh everyone's like don't be stupid like what are you talking about that's nonsense but it scared nan enough that she went and got checked and sure enough she had cancer so then he realized that this entity which he he goes, as far as I know, I'm the only person that hears it audibly in my ear, right? I mm -hmm. actually hear the sound. Everyone, most of the other people, they get the noise that's coming in their head, the messages, the intuition, whatever. And he talked about how he would see it on, he would see it walking down the street. He would see it every conversation. He would see it at the television, the characters. He would see even the, the, the illnesses within these characters, not real people, just characters in a TV show. And he said, I just wanted it to stop because it was relentless mm. and he was over it. And I'm listening to this part of the book at a time when I'm, when I'm, my gifts are starting to really come through and I'm having that same experience and I'm like, I'm fucking done with this. It's exhausting. It's overwhelming. I don't want this anymore. I don't want it. And he says, and I was at the beach and my dog or by the water and my dog got into trouble and started to drown. So I went out to rescue my dog and then we're both under and we're sinking down into the depths and I'm dying. And he said, I spoke to God and I said, I promise you, if you get me out of this, I will go and, and I will use this gift to the best of my ability. So I'm getting emotional now because that literally stopped me in my tracks. I was walking down the backyard to the um, laundry and I stopped where I was and went, oh, shit. Like, that's what I'm doing. And so I made a commitment then. I'm like, no, I'll bring it on. Like, I, I want to learn as much as I can. So now that I've made that commitment, the, the gifts and abilities that have come through to me that I'm able to help people navigate, depending on the circumstance. So for some people, it's just a conversation. We don't do any deep healing, but we do because the conversation is part of it. And like my coach says, like, I, I heal with my voice, so don't try and overcomplicate it. But there are times where I'll be talking to someone and, and they'll be like, and I'll go, oh, what's going on with your left hip or whatever? And they'll be like, what the f Like, how do you know that? I've been having a problem with that for 12 months. And I said, oh, okay, well, can we just dig a bit that and let's see? I said, oh, well, who's this grandparent that that's related to? And they're like, and so they get emotional and they're like, well, the first person that come to mind that it's like it's this person and, and this person was like, passed about the same time as the hip injury started um, and he was that person for me that was always there and and she was just like she couldn't she was mind was blown that I'd been able to pull that information out but then even more mind-blowing was when I spoke to her not long after that when the hip pain had gone and she'd been to massage to physiotherapy to any number of different things that couldn't get rid of it and now it was gone and she said and it's been gone since then but it came back one day I listened to one of your meditations and it went again so even that blows me away, right? Because I'm mm. like, I don't know how I do that, but the guidance comes through to me. So that was her grief around her her grandparent that she didn't know there was like she knew that this person was important, but didn't just realize just how much 
their, their passing had had an impact. So that's the grief code. So good. So, so good. Yeah, and it's emotional because all the things that I've healed over the last 12 years have, well, I didn't realize how much of an impact they were having, but also know how much of an impact it's had to, to release them, to, to no longer have the impact of that. And the difference that creates in so many different areas to the point where your family won't understand you because they don't understand how you're not reacting to certain situations, how you used to. And it troubles them to a certain degree and it, and it's scary for them because they're like, who is this person that I don't even feel like I know anymore? And that's one of the, I was going to say unfortunate. It's not unfortunate. It's just part of the process. It's one of the parts of growth that people don't prepare you for. But that if you're prepared to stay the course and not go, well, I'm just going to dismiss all those people, which is a natural reaction. You know, if they don't understand me, like, fuck them. No, no, if you, if you be patient and know that they're just grappling with, with the shift that, like, the way that they used to connect with you is no longer there. And they're going to react in certain ways. And being patient, give them their space. Some will come back, some won't. But that's their choice, not yours. How do you stay um, grounded and connected in in that place where you allow them to come up with you or come with the flow with you, right? Like to catch up with the newer version with you, grow with you, versus when it's time to, at least for now, separate ways. Space and love. The space is, if they're not in a space that they want to connect with you regularly or take your phone calls or whatever, give them the space. Mm. When you come across their path and, and if things kick off, what would love do? So I've had examples. I've, I've, I've been attacked by family members, not physically, verbally, and I, and I won't apologize for things that I've done which I believe in, which is hard for them to take. But I'll always come back with like once once the emotions die down, give them a hug, and it's all good. Uh, it doesn't mean I it doesn't mean I'll necessarily go back to similar situations and go through that again. It's not about going. Well, you're off the hook. Like you still got to like I'm I'm not. If you want to spend some time with me, like it's it's got to be cool. It's got to be chilled. I'm not going to go into those environments anymore. But. I'll give you all the love in the world because I do. I love you. You're my family. But it doesn't mean I have to like you all the time. And if you piss me off, I'll I'll just retreat or I'll tell you depending on the situation because love's, love's kind. It's not always nice. Love is kind but not always nice. Hmm. So while you said to me before, when your messages are kind, they're also laced with direct to the point messages mm -hmm. that they need to hear, right? So mm -hmm. I'm kindly telling them to get their ass in the gear. Do you want to slowly wrap it up? You're the boss. 
I like I personally feel we have to do this several times more because there's so much more so deeper to go always so much to process and always things come up but maybe because you're, you're big into journaling right for your for yourself at least um yeah. I don't know if that's a part of your actual practice yeah, yeah I've got it right oh, here yeah. so so my journaling process has evolved it's less structured and more uh in the moment whereas to create the habit i needed to do it every afternoon at the end of my working day whereas now it's like i'll meditate i'll take the journal i'll come out of meditation to write what i need to write down i'll have other ideas different moments so yeah it's an important part maybe give us all of us yeah uh, a prompt one or two for us to deepen our, our invitation to journaling and our invitation to ourself. Okay. Two, the best one that came from um, Robin Sharma. I'm sure it was him. I'll have to look that up now. I'm pretty sure it was him. And he said, the last thing on your daily journal entry is what was the something wonderful that happened today? Just the one thing. And every day there's something wonderful. And you might go, well, nothing good's happened today. So you just go, well, today I got up and I've got both my legs and I can walk. Or whatever it is for you. The sun was out. I had a nice time here, whatever. But what the unconscious part of your brain says, I want to do better tomorrow. I want to better something wonderful tomorrow. And it starts fighting for you. And you're like, the next day something better happens. You're like, wow, where did that come from? And the next day, something better. And at the end of a week where you might think, my week wasn't so good, you go, wow, look at those five wonderful things that happened. And over a year or 10, imagine how many wonderful things will come into your life. So that was a big one. And the other one is that, like I said, the meditation. My, my kinesiologist said, I feel like for you, get into nature, get away from the house, take your journal, meditate, and when the ideas come through, start writing. Now, I was very much in, no, no, I meditate this way. I'll write down the ideas after I finish my meditation. But I was missing good stuff. You can't trust your memory. So who decided you can't break your meditation to write in your journal? It's just another idea or rule or this is, you know, people saying this is how it needs to be. It's like, no, fuck that. So now sometimes the idea is I'll sit down, I'll close my eyes and, and ideas come to me straight away. So the tip for all of you is don't call it meditation if you're not ready for meditation. Close your eyes in a place where you won't be disturbed, that's quiet, and just relax. And when you get an idea that you need to write something down, something that's been good, something that's pissing you off, something that you want to change, something wonderful, whatever, Start writing. And then go, once you finish writing, close your eyes again. So, so I'll literally get downloads of, oh, here's an idea for a post. And I'll go, can I start writing? So the kinesiology, for those who have done it, you can get it, your body will give a yes, no response. So I can quickly just do yes, no, like it comes to me pretty quickly now. I'll get a yes. I'll start writing. Suddenly I've written this post. I put it out there and people go, oh, my God, have you got a video at my house or, oh my God, it's like you're inside my head. 
So it's still content that I know, but it's coming to me in a way that will be delivered exactly to those people in a way they need to hear it. And to me, that's the that's the coolest thing ever. So you've still got to get your brand right. You've still got to get your story and your message right. But when you can get that intuitive guidance through, it changes everything. Mm. I love it. That's like my secret sauce to Maddie's to Maddie's marketing um, system. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. That's okay. Thanks so much for you. Thank you for sharing all of it. You are most welcome. Thank you for coming and extracting all of this from me. Yes. Is there a book coming? There is a book coming. And, yeah, right. and um, <laughs> so I spoke with a uh, book writing coach uh, just before my holiday. And she said to me, in the next 24, 48 hours, take action on this. Because if you don't, nothing will have happened. And it was a busy week. So I didn't. And nothing has happened. So thank you for the reminder to go back to her information and start getting that out. <laughs> I can't so there's wait three, for the there's three there's three books so far that have come through uh, and they seem to be more like I've already had heaps of ideas like I don't know if you read The Alchemist um, there's um, Brendan Bouchard's Life Golden Ticket uh, Robin Sharma's The Monk Who Sold His The Monk Who Sold His You're Ferrari. the only one who loves that like who mentions that one I'm so obsessed I had um, I have a I have a whole leg tattooed based because of that with um, Carnival and Carousel and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh my yeah. god! I make everyone always read that book, like shove it in their face. Yeah. Oh, so so, so good. Yeah, Roman Roman the monk who sold his Ferrari. I don't know if you read that one, um, but I, but I've I think I'll write one like that too. That's oh, like yeah. a it's a story, but it's it's a metaphor. Um, yeah. I see what's really cool, just on those books. I've been talking to my kids about reading this Alchemist book for, for ages and, and neither of them have, but but my young fella's fully immersed in his own little personal growth world. Uh, he's doing some cool things. Oh, they both are in different ways, but his is very much that traditional. Um, and he goes, I'm going to read The Alchemist. I've heard that's really good for um I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> For finding out what you want to do with your life. I'm like, yeah, yep. Wish I'd had that one uh, back then. But then at the same time, it's like some journeys are just meant to happen how they're meant to happen. Sure. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you. Let's do this again soon. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.